Our Father, indeed, a comfort to your people is the recognition that you have not taken a deaf ear to the wailings and the groans of the hearts of your people. We are a people who are sore oppressed in a world that's so marred and scarred with sin, and yet our difficulty does not go unnoticed by you. You are intimately acquainted with all our ways. You are a God who comes alongside and assists in the midst of our darkest hours and deepest waters. And so, Father, remind us that in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the complexity, in the midst of the perhaps even persecution, that you are not some absentee landlord. You have not deserted us. You are indeed acquainted with the ways of your people. And so, Father, remind us of the great comfort that that will bring us, that we are not alone. Uh, In the midst of our marriages or families or in the midst of our jobs or in the midst of a single life, we're not alone. And I pray that you will stir up greater levels of devotion and response to your involvement in our lives. Our Father, we do enjoy the land in which we live. We thank you for it. We, uh, we had nothing to say about being born in this country. And yet we were. And m- most of the world cannot fathom what we enjoy as Americans. We didn't earn it. We didn't um, deserve it. You have shed your grace on this, our country. Much of it has been purchased at a very high price. And I pray, O oh God, that as you, as we worship this morning, that you might remind us that freedom is not our right, it is our privilege. And we who are related to Jesus Christ know another dimension of freedom, that our conscience is quieted. And that we do not fear the day of our demise because we have been promised everlasting life. Father, thank you for Gracie Van, and I pray that you will stir her up, that you'll remind her that our needs are not going to be met in any other place save in your presence. So take us now and stir up a greater desire and willingness to sacrifice for the advancement of the kingdom. We thank you for the privilege and pray that you'll use every dime of these monies to glorify your son. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Read you two quick verses out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32 of Ephesians 4. Listen now while I read just a couple of verses out of a book that we consider to be errorless, inspired, inerrant, infallible, the, the final rule of faith and practice. Here it is. It says this. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
If I were to mention technique in relationship to marriage, I think I know what would come into many of your minds. But there are other techniques that are important to marriage. The technique of communication. And uh, what I have to speak to you about is not as exciting as either of those. But if I were making a list of um, techniques that were vital to marriage, my subject this morning would be at the top. Um, if I could help us do something better to improve our marriages, it would be this. It would be the art of forgiveness. Folks, um, I call it the oil that keeps the marital machine humming. And the reason that it is so vital to a marriage is because both of you have been run over by the fall. By the historic fall of Genesis 3. We're both such sinful people. And consequently, we have so many opportunities to uh, exercise this art, this technique of forgiveness. If you never learn this art, this skill, this technique, your marriage is doomed. You know, I quoted a Holocaust survivor several years ago, and this quote has stuck with me for so long. He said, uh, in response to the Holocaust, he said, if you could lick my soul, it would poison you. Well, I wonder if we could lick your marriage. (laughs) What kind of taste would it leave in our mouths? I told you about that couple that came to me years ago when I was still in Florida. This couple comes to me for marital counseling. That was their first mistake. They came to me. But um, they come to me for some marital help. And um, they tell me this story about something that took place on their, their honeymoon. It seems that they attended a parade on their honeymoon, and, and the, this new groom salivated over this uh, skimpily clad majorette that was walking down the street. And here they were in my office 25 years later, still talking about it, still unresolved, still a grudge being born. It reminded me of a, of a story I read about a Spanish patriot who was dying on the field of battle And as he was dying, a a Roman Catholic priest came running up to him and said, My son, have you forgiven all of your enemies? And he said, Father, I have no enemies. I shot them all. Well, that's not the right option, gang, when it comes to marriage. We don't shoot. We learn something about the the great art, skill, and technique of forgiveness. And I want to talk you into that this morning, but I know I can't. I wish I could. I wish I could um, talk you into it. But you know, anything that I can talk you into, somebody else can talk you out of in a half an hour. Uh, but I, I, I would like to lay before you an argument, a case. And then we've got a, a, a couple of definitions and then a, a look at the scriptures and then a couple of stories and I'm finished. But I want to try and give you reasons to long to know how to do this and to do it well and to do it frequently and, and regularly because our marriages really depend on it. So here's my first argument, my first reason, my, the first part of my argument to forgive or to learn this art, and it's this. 
The only thing harder than forgiveness is the alternative. Mahatma Gandhi once said that if everyone followed the eye for an eye principle of justice, eventually the whole world would go blind. And indeed we would, folks. Uh, there, there is one major flaw in the law of revenge, and that is it never settles the score. You, you want an example? Well, all you got to do is look at Eastern Europe, Bosnia, Serbia, Kosovo, or Rwanda on the continent of Africa. The, uh, the Turks got revenge in 1389 at the Battle of Kesevo. The, uh, the Croats got revenge in the early 1940s. And so the Serbs now say it's our turn. Surely they understand. I, I hope, I would think they would understand that eventually the, the descendants of all those who have been murdered and maimed and sexually assaulted will one day rise up to seek revenge on the Serbs. The flaw in revenge, folks, is that it never gets what it wants. Lewis Smedes, which is a name that I think is familiar to some of you, wrote a book on the subject of forgiveness, and I'm quoting from him. He says, vengeance is a passion to get even. It is a hot desire to give back as much pain as someone gave you. The problem with revenge is that it never get what gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set off by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalator of pain. Both are stuck on the escalators as long as parity is demanded, and the escalator never stops, never lets anyone off. Gang, hold on to your offense, and that escalator will ultimately take you into marital ruin. Forgiveness may be unfair. You know, I think it is by definition. But at least it provides a way to halt this juggernaut of retribution. One author said that where unforgiveness reigns, a Newtonian law comes into play. That being... For every atrocity, there must be an equal and opposite atrocity. So he hurts you, and you respond by some kind of effort to make him pay. Or she hurts you, and you withdraw, and the whole thing continues to spiral down. Guys, I readily admit that forgiveness is not fair. It's not fair. If fairness is what you want, then you ought to become a Hindu. They have a much better um, way to achieve fairness in their doctrine of karma. In fact, Hindu scholars have calculated with mathematical precision how many incarnations it would take you to get justice for all of the, the uh, uh, wrongs that have been inflicted upon your life. They have calculated that it will take 6.8 million incarnations for you to finally balance the books. And some of you, you need to get to reincarnating. You need to get busy. I'm not saying to you 
that um, forgiveness is fair. I'm saying that the only thing harder than forgiveness is to not forgive. You know, several years ago, it must have been 10, 12 years ago, there was a book on the beaches of um, Destin that where everybody was reading. It seemed like, as you walked up and down the beach, it seemed like everybody was reading the same book. It was a book that was written by Mary Carr. It was entitled The Liar's Club. Did you read that book? Well, there's a story in there where she tells a story about her uncle who lived in Texas uh, who remained married to his wife but did not speak to her for 40 years over a fight or after a fight that occurred uh, over the amount that she had paid for sugar. And so on one occasion, he takes a lumber saw, which I, I've never seen one of those, but that's uh, this lumberman's saw, and saws their house down the middle, completely down the middle, saws the house, and then, and then boards up these two open sides, and then takes his F-350 and pulls his half of the house across their lawn to under a clump of trees. And there he lived out the rest of his life for the next 40 years, never speaking to his wife. Is that what you want? Do you want marital mediocrity? Well, gang, forgiveness offers you a way out. It doesn't settle all the questions of blame and fairness and who was right and who was wrong. In fact, on some occasions, it, it, it just avoids all those questions. But it does allow a relationship to start over, to begin anew. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which is a name that should be um, familiar to you, Solzhenitsyn said, our ability to forgive is the thing that separates us from animals. It's not our capacity to think, he said. It is our ability to perform the most unnatural act of forgiveness. Not to forgive imprisons me to my marital past and locks out all potential that we have to get beyond this and move on and get better. So what I do, in essence, by not forgiving is that I yield control. I forfeit my marital future by placing it into the hands of the person that has offended me. And I doom myself to suffer the consequences of the wrong. I read um, a quote from another Holocaust survivor, um, which is one of my interests, the Holocaust, but I, uh, a, a Jewish rabbi who immigrated to this country uh, after World War II. And he said, before coming to America, I had to forgive Adolf Hitler. I did not want to bring Hitler inside of me to my new country. Well, some of you still got that offense inside you. And you refuse to give it up. And it is ruining your marriage. The only antidote to the irreversibility of your marital history is the faculty, the art, the technique, the skill of forgiveness. So that's my first argument. That is, the only thing harder than forgiving 
is not forgiving. Here's the second argument. People who fail to forgive, they become very ugly people. They're bitter and sour and angry and unhappy and and petty and small and critical and emotionless. You've not only ruined your marriage, you've ruined other relationships as well. Harold Kushner. Harold Kushner is the the rabbi that wrote uh, Why Did Bad Things Happen to Good People that sold billions of copies. Um, but he tells a story in that book about a woman who came to him for some uh, some help, some counseling. She was a divorced a young woman, a divorced young woman with three small children. And so she sat in Kushner's office and she said, you know, ever since my husband deserted the four of us, I've had to look at my kids and say, we don't have money to go to the movies. We don't have money to buy anything new to wear. We don't have money for anything fun to eat. We don't have any money. While my husband is off playing with his new wife in another state. And you're asking me to forgive him. And here's what Kushner said. I'm not asking you to forgive him because what he did was acceptable. It wasn't. It was mean and selfish. I'm asking you to forgive because he doesn't deserve the power to live in your head and turn you into a bitter, angry woman. I'd like to see him out of your life emotionally as completely as he is out of it physically. But you keep holding on to him. You're not hurting him by holding on to that resentment. But you're hurting yourself. There was an article in the Commercial Appeal several years ago, and, and I read it. It wasn't that good of an article, but the, the, the title of the article caught my attention. The title was simply, To Forgive is Simply Healthier. It is. And I wonder if some of our health issues could be traced back to a, an unwillingness on our part to grant forgiveness. Fred Smith, not, the, um, not of FedEx fame, there's another Fred Smith who is quite a, a, a mentor in the Christian world. He was a Dallas businessman, and he made a fortune. And I don't even know how he made his fortune, but he was interviewed one, um, one day in Leadership Magazine, which is a Christianity Today magazine. He was interviewed, and after he retired, he became a, a, a business consultant, and he would go from business to business, try and help them work through their problems. And, and in this article in Leadership Magazine, he was asked, how is it that you can go into a company in a week and find out where all of their company problems are? And he said, well, this is how I do it. He said, all I got to do is go in there and find the ego. Because where you find the ego, you're gonna, that's where you're going to find the problems. Isn't that the truth? Well, if you go into a marriage, you know how to find the problems? Just go find where there's no forgiveness. And that's where the problems will be. That's my second argument. Here's my third you know the story about Joseph? You know, Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery, and then he goes down to Egypt and arises to the right hand of Pharaoh, and then ultimately ends up uh, feeding his brothers and forgiving his brothers and all that. Well, here's, uh, once this whole thing has come into the light, there's this statement made. Don't turn. Let me just read it to you. This is in um, uh, Genesis 45. Verse 2, it says, And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. 
That is, once this thing has come to light and he's standing in front of his brothers and his brothers know that he's Joseph, the one they sold into slavery, Joseph's response is he wails so loudly that the people down the block could hear him. What's the matter? Is he sick? Is there, is, what, what's wrong with him? Well, that's just the sounds of forgiveness, folks. But uh, later on in that same chapter, in verses 16 and 17, we're told that, that uh, no, um, yes, verse 16. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well, and Pharaoh said to his Joseph, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, here's my point. Once Pharaoh heard of the forgiveness, Pharaoh launches this project to try and help any way he can. Because the, 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 the story that he heard about somebody forgiving such a major offense made a tremendous impact on this pagan. That's my point. Forgiveness will impact not only the pagans, folks, it will impact everybody around it. But so will the lack of forgiveness. I read a story once about a husband and a wife who had had this, this tumultuous marriage. And on one occasion, they were in the midst of a fight, and, and um, they were just go- going after each other. I mean, just tearing into each other. And, and uh, the, the husband finally blows his stack, and, and he looks at her and says, I hate you. I won't take this anymore. I've had enough. I, 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 I won't go on. I'm not going to let it happen. No, no, no. I hope that didn't sound familiar. But they made it through that argument remarkably. And about two months later, he was awakened in the middle of the night because he heard sounds coming out of his two-year-old son's bedroom. And so he gets out of bed, walks down the hall, and he listens at the door of his two-year-old where he hears things that absolutely sent shivers down his spine in this little soft two-year-old voice in the middle of a night. There is this two-year-old repeating word for word with precise inflection of voice, the argument that he had heard between his mother and his daddy. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. Forgiveness leaves a sweet taste in people's mouths. Everybody associated with this issue. But a lack of forgiveness leaves its mark as well. Is that what you want to bequeath to your children? Huh? Is that what we want to leave behind? A legacy of a toxin? Because that's what a lack of forgiveness is. What we're asking for, gang, when we're asking for forgiveness, is that we're not asking for your memory bank to become somehow erased. 
I don't, I, I'm not saying to you that you will forever forget this. I am saying, however, that you will never use it again. You will never use it against your spouse. You will never tell your friends about it. You will never tell your mother and daddy about it. It is gone. In terms of it ever affecting your relationship again, it's buried. It's gone. And to the offender, let me tell you what we're asking of you. We're not asking for an apology. An apology might tell us how you feel, but we're asking for repentance. We're asking for you to go to the offendee and say that you repent of your offense. Apologies are just kind of a, uh, the, the way that we have cooked up a scheme to substitute for real repentance. Because that's what we need. But if that happens, my friends, then the duty in front of us is clear. I want to show you a couple of statements from the Scriptures, which I hope will help. I hope I've given you an argument. I hope I've convinced you. But let me bolster my argument by reading you a couple of things from the Scriptures. This first one is in Romans chapter 12. You know it. It's um, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's my point, guys, from Romans 12. In the final analysis, forgiveness is an act of faith. That is, you conclude that God is a better justice maker than you are. And that you... Climb down off of his throne. Very honestly, his throne is not vacant. And it doesn't need an occupant. And so ultimately, in, in, it is a response of faith that we say, all right, I, I, I know this, there is questions of fairness and blame that still exist, but I must trust that God will somehow do what's right. And I will leave that to him. Because I know my duty is clear. And your duty is in our text this morning. It's a wonderful statement, gang. It's in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read verse 32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Folks, that that really raises the stakes. Because the real reason behind the duty is because we have been forgiven so much. Gang, unforgiveness is a toxin and forgiveness is its only antidote. And and for some, it is eating away at the vitals of our marriage. Forgiveness is a healthy, wholesome, virtuous, liberating act. Forgiveness unleashes joy. It brings peace. It washes the slate clean. It it, it sets all of Christianity's highest virtues in motion. I say to you, my friends, you are never more like Jesus Christ than when you're forgiving. Forgiveness is Christianity's finest moment. It's Christianity at its best. 
And we are called to perform it in light of, in view of, forgiveness that we have received. Now, let me tell you my two stories and I'm finished. One of the stories comes from a movie I just saw. In fact, it's still showing. You can go see it. I, um, I, I don't think it would be bad for you. I mean, it's not and then just about anything you see now has got some objectionable parts. But the movie is entitled The Interpreter with Nicole Kidman and Sean Penn. Have you seen it? It's still out there. It's, um, go see it. Maybe I should back. I, I didn't recommend it. You just, it's out there. <laughs> But um, uh, if, if you've seen the movie, you might remember this scene. Nicole Kidman is uh, playing, a, her, her name is Sylvia. And Sylvia, is, uh, her, her native home is a, a fictitious African country called Motubu. And she's explaining to uh, Sean Penn one of the customs of Motubu. Um, Motubu is a nation that has been racked with civil war, tribal fighting and warfare, and in that tribal warfare, her mother, her father, and her sister had been killed. In the face of that, those murders, here's the story she told. She said in Motubu that um, what they did when a murderer was captured and convicted, that a strange thing then took place, that the murderer and the next of kin, that would have been Sylvia, are taken into a boat out into the middle of the river. They are escorted out into the middle of a river um, in a boat. The convicted murderer is bound and gagged. And in the middle of the river, the, the, the convicted, the criminal, is thrown into the river. And at that moment, the next of kin faces a crisis. The next of kin can allow this murderer to sink to the bottom and drown. And if that is the option chosen, justice is served. But the survivor is then haunted by that death forever. Or the other option is the innocent can save the guilty. The innocent can forgive. And then they can move past this horrible incident. My friends, in the midst of that marital strife, you're the offended one. Okay. I'm telling you. You're in a crisis. You're going to throw them overboard? Let him sink to the bottom. You can. And you can tell your mother that you were right. And you can tell all the girls down at the, uh, down at the gym, I was right. And you'll end up with a marriage that you absolutely don't even want. Here's my last story. It happens, by the way, I think this story comes out of a Philip Yancey book. I think that's where I got it, but I think, so don't hold me to do that. But anyway, 
Um, it happened several years ago when South Africa were, was going through those turbulent years when, when Nelson Mandela was uh, let, let out of prison and that he was ultimately elected president. You remember that? That must have been 15, 20 years ago or so. Well, N- Nelson Mandela was the president of South Africa. Well, one of the first things that Nelson Mandela did was appoint what he called a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Actually, not a committee, it was a commission. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And what Mandela was seeking to do is to diffuse this, this natural instinct of revenge now that the black African had succeeded to power. And so for the next two and a half years, this commission, this TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, listened to reports of atrocities that had um, occurred in South Africa. The rules of this commission were very simple. If a white policeman or or a white army officer voluntarily faced his accusers, confessed his crime, and fully acknowledged his guilt... He could then not be tried nor punished for his crime. Now, of course, the, uh, the, the hardliners grumbled about this obvious injustice in letting the criminals go free. But Mandela was insisting that this country, that his country needed healing even more than it needed justice. One of the cases that appeared before this Truth and Reconciliation Commission was this one. A, uh, a white policeman whose name was Vanderbrock. By the way, this is a true story. A, a white policeman by the name of Vanderbrock appeared before the TRC and recounted for them uh, an, an incident where he and some other officers shot and killed an 18-year-old boy and then took that little that 18-year-old boy And roasted him on a spit over an open fire like you would do to a piece of meat, all intended to destroy the evidence. Eight years later, this same white policeman, Vanderbrock, returned to the same house and seized the boy's father. His wife was then forced to watch as policemen bound her husband on a woodpile, doused him with gasoline, and lit it. The courtroom was hushed as this elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. The judge turned to her and said, What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrock? She said she wanted Vanderbrock to go to the place where they had burned her husband and gather up dust so she could give him a decent burial. And Vanderbrock, with his head bowed, Nodded agreement. And then she added this, and I'm quoting. 
Mr. Vanderbrock took all my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. As she approached the place where Vanderbrock was seated, her intent being to embrace him, someone in that courtroom spontaneously began to sing Amazing Grace. And by the time this elderly woman got to Vanderbrock, he couldn't hear the singing. He had fainted, overwhelmed with a display of forgiveness. So she spent too much for sugar, did she? Mm. So he didn't remember your birthday? He said a nasty thing to you? I'm sorry. I wish he hadn't. She's been unfaithful? Mm. That's hard. But here's what we do. We go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And we drink deeply of the forgiveness that we have received that we didn't deserve from Jesus Christ. And then we go to our spouse and give them some of that. You can let them sink to the bottom of the river. It's up to you. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will stir your people to a new, found, fresh commitment to engage regularly and frequently and as often as is needed this great art this grace of forgiveness. Indeed, Father, it will only be something done through people who have tasted the sweetness of amazing grace. So, Father, in the midst of knowing what we have gotten from Jesus that we didn't deserve, might we be people who now distribute that. To our spouses, to our neighbor, to our children, to our boss, to those relatives. Might we be a people set apart, not because we got fairness, 
but because we exercised a forgiveness that we've tasted and received that we never deserved. Forgiveness in Christ. How beautiful it is. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.